Welcome to Look See. I'm Paige Goodpasture, and today my guest is photographer Chris McCaw. Chris first encountered a darkroom when he was 13 years old, and he has been making photos ever since, from his roots in the skateboarding and punk rock scenes of the 1990s until now. His work has been shown all over the world and is in the collections of major museums, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Chris describes what he does as straight photography, a lens, the light, a camera, and something to receive the light. That's it. Elemental. Elemental is also the perfect description of the primary subject of his work, the movement of the sun across the landscape, often in the most remote places on earth. Chris has taken his homemade monumental cameras to the Mojave Desert, the equator, and the Arctic Circle to photograph the cycle of the sun. The images that result have a reverence to them, a deep sense of respect and awe that these timeless processes and places exist and go on every day without regard for us. If we came upon Chris in one of these places, we would see a rugged, humble guy with his camera made of plywood, wood screws, duct tape, and surplus airplane parts, with a hole cut in the bellows to vent the heat and smoke that come from the sun literally burning its way across the vintage photo paper that receives its light. We might smell roasting marshmallows, the smell of the burning of the gelatin coating on the paper as the sun makes its mark, and we would hear the timeless sounds of the landscape, the wind and bird song, and maybe some colorful language when it's time to quickly change the paper in the back of the camera. And if we followed him back to his dark room, we would see beautiful images with a palpable, almost sculptural presence emerge on the paper, reflecting the heat and light of the sun and its interaction with the chemicals on the paper and in the dark room, straight photography, and so much more. I spoke with Chris at Candela Gallery, where his work is on view through June 16th. And take my word for it, this is work that you need to see in person. I am here today with Chris McCaw at Candela Gallery for the Look See podcast. So Chris, thanks so much for being here and taking the time out of your day to talk to me for Look See. Oh, no, pleasure to be here. One of the things that I've heard you say is that your primary series, Sunburn, is straight photography. Can you talk about what you mean by that? It's extremely straight in that What's on the wall is what was there on location. All I do is process it, and there's no manipulation of the image, there's no cropping. You get what you get. I consider that completely straight photography. What are the essential elements of photography for you? For me, I just love the act of uh, light and chemistry, and that's why I'm still in the darkroom. Ever since I, my mom forced me to go to a community center basic photography class when I was 13, and I was just blown away when you see the image come up in the tray, and it still is exciting. I've always just loved the, the magic of light and chemistry. There's flaws, there's dust, there's scratches, there's uh, all those imperfections. And then, I don't know, there's also considerations that were made in the darkroom where they maybe burned the edges too much. <laughs> uh, but all those qualities are wonderful. They make it more human in some ways. 
Let's back up and talk a little bit about how you got started with this. So you mentioned that your mom sent you to a photography class. So you went to a photography class and it started there. Mm -hmm. How did your process as a mature photographer begin? Basically, I took that photography class and then that was it for about five years. I was self-taught. I was a skateboarder. Skateboarding and punk rock was, I had my blinders on and that was it in the from the mid 80s to like early 90s. Then in 1990, I went to community college and I learned about fiber-based paper and view cameras and contact printing. And my brain kind of exploded because I had just had a fisheye lens and Tri-X film the whole time. Which is perfect for photographing punk rock bands and skateboarders. Yeah, it's it's the classic materials and tools. For five years, I was constantly going to the library. You know, there was no internet back then, so I'd go to the library and check out monographs, but also all those technical manuals and just kind of thumb through all these weird processes and stumble through them and um, try not to hurt myself with mixing chemistry wrong or something. Once once I learned about the larger world of photography, I just got hooked and I, I sold my fisheye lens and I got a I got an old press camera, uh, a 4x5 like Ouija would use or something, and made a little 4x5 contact prints and I was like, ah, oh, they're only 4x5, I want to go bigger. And I learned about banquet cameras that are just essentially larger view cameras that are more panoramic, which kind of worked with my, my field of view. My normal lens was a fisheye lens for five years, so I've always had this kind of wide field of view and so uh, I... I started learning about banquet cameras and one of my instructors used a 12 by 20 view camera which I actually bought off him years later like 15 years later and I I ended up buying a a hundred year old Corona banquet camera that was made out of wood that was very rickety because that's all I could afford was kind of like the beat one it was terrifying to use and so I, I kept the film holders for the camera and sold the camera. And um, with that money, paid my rent for a couple of months. <laughs> I had just graduated with my BFA, but my student ID was still valid through the summer, so I could use the wood shop. And I was like, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make my own camera, and then if, once I make it, I won't be scared to use it. And I'll take it places I can use it just like I used to use my 35mm camera. Definitely influenced by Sally Mann and Mark Clett and Linda Connor, who were much looser with the view camera. Can you just explain to those who don't know, what is a view camera? Essentially, it's a basic light-tight box where there's a lens on one side and a place to put film on the other side. And the fancier ones have bellows in between so that the lens and paper can move away from each other so you can focus the lens. And in the very beginnings of photography, if you wanted a 8x10 image, you had to have an 8x10 camera with an 8x10 negative. That's one of the things that really got me with view cameras was that immediacy. Every contact print, you know that film that was at the location had touched that paper. And I, I love that connection to it. I always thought that was really fascinating. And this, the, all this work I'm doing now is just a kind of continuation of that. Mm-hmm. And so after you built your camera and felt comfortable taking it around, you started taking it to some really kind of out of the way places. That's true. I have gone to the edges of the <laughs> of the planet, the equator, the Arctic Circle multiple times because I need to go there. 
I don't have control of my subject matter, so uh, you know, I want 24 hours of daylight. I got to go over there. I, can, I want the sun to rise perpendicularly off the horizon in a straight vertical line. I have to go to the equator. So, how did you first discover that the sun and its path was going to be your subject? I, I'm totally honest about it. It happened by accident. It was uh, a failure, actually. I, I was doing a night exposure. Uh, where you leave the shutter open all night long and you get the star trails. And so I had the lens of my camera opened all the way up to let as much light in as possible and focused at infinity so that the stars would be in focus. And uh, we broke out the whiskey around the campfire with a few of my friends and I woke up at nine in the morning and I never closed the shutter. And I happened to point my camera east right into the sunrise. I just assumed, uh, well, I'll just have this like black rectangle with no information on it. And I almost threw the piece of film away. Later that day, when I was changing out my film that I'd shot that day, I got to that piece and there was a tear in the film. And I, I was thoroughly confused. And I was like, oh, the sun. And I still thought it was garbage. But I put it in my download box of film that it was exposed. And I continued on my trip for the rest of the two or three weeks in the Southwest. and. Got home, was developing film, got to that sheet. In the dark, you could feel the tear. And you're like, is this really worth the time and effort and chemistry? And is it just going to scratch all my other negatives? <laughs> but I processed it. And when I turned the lights on after it came out of the fixer, I was blown away. The film had solarized, which means it had received so much exposure of the hours of the sun rising into the frame. It does this natural reversal of tonality. So. Instead of just having something that's overexposed with no information on it, if you let it keep going and you overexpose it more, you get this reversal. Instead of a a film negative, it was more like a a slide, like a transparency. It had reversed into a positive, a very murky positive, but enough where you could see the horizon line and it was fascinating. Mm -hmm. I, I... Stared at it for a while, and being a photographer, I have a piece of film, so you make a print from your piece of film, and so this positive image would print as a negative, and then where it, the, the hole in the film just printed black. There was nothing there to hold the light back, so it, it just was confusing and didn't work, but I knew there was something there. I was excited about it, and for about three years, I was burning pieces of film, and all I had to go from was my semester-long class in introduction to astronomy at community college and uh, remembering, you know, the different seasons and winter solstice, the sun's very low, summer, the sun goes over your head, depending on where you are, and always being fascinated about learning about 24 hours of daylight at the poles at the different times of year. So having that information, it slowly progressed and one day my buddy who had a gallery in West Oakland, California, he's like, you get a show, but you got to show new work. I focused on the sun stuff. I had all this old black and white photo paper. I start putting, putting the paper inside the film holders instead of film because I kept wanting to get back to that direct piece of film that had the scorching, the immediacy of the subject, the sun. Like It was just bizarre that it was coming into the camera and physically doing this. And I, out of all these boxes of old paper, one box was able to do the solarization in a, in a way that where it 
it made sense. And once I saw that, I was like, oh, it's on. I figured it out. This is it. And had a show. I sold a couple. I was like, all right, I sold some. But wait, those are my only copies. I didn't want to, I, I wanted to hold on to them. They were my babies, but it's actually quite liberating to be able to move on to the next thing. And any other art medium that's completely normal, but for a photographer, it was a learning experience. And, and now I, I love it. That's one thing when you shoot film and you go back and reprint something, you keep renegotiating it. And with this work, you, like I said, it's straight uh, and you get what you get. Yeah there's an immediacy to it and obviously each piece is unique and each piece has the presence of the place where it was made because it was made in that place and it can't be made anywhere else and it can't be remade anywhere else that actually leads me to another thing that I wonder about with your work so your work is a, is about the sun and the movement of the sun through the sky, but they're also landscapes, and they're very classic landscapes in the sense of, of the, the dawn of photography. They have that beautiful kind of silvery color to them, but they're very faint. They're, they're ghostly almost. They're about a place, that sense of place. Is that something that's important to you in your work? Well, I've definitely been influenced by early photographers, landscape photographers, and being from San Francisco Bay Area, Carlton Watkins and Edward Moybridge were right there, <laughs> you know. And so you go to a lot of places they went, and Ansel was there, all those Weston. I mean, they're all right there. But one of the main reasons why I go out into the wild is this work for me talks about time on a different level. There's going to be a, a landscape throughout time. I mean, it's just going to keep going. And I wanted to speak to that. I have made a few images in urban areas, but I really, it speaks too much about that time. And I wanted to speak to something that went on a little farther. It's elemental and timeless and these landscapes, but then also the, the sun rising and setting and rising and setting. And, and, it's, and, and we live our lives and we get caught up on all the um, news cycles and whatnot. In the meantime, this is in the background. It's what makes us able to live and exist. And it's just this constant thing that happens, this natural cycle that happens. You know, that actually kind of gets to a different thing that I'm wondering about. So your process seems to be very intuitive. You uncover the lens yeah. and, and it is what it is. And you kind of have to know intuitively what you think is happening inside the camera. But then it's also very technical. There's astronomy and physics involved and there's chemistry and there, you know, and there's a precision involved. How do you reconcile those two parts of, of you as an artist? Yeah, um, it's, it is interesting. It is, I say it's very straight, and it, it is very simple. I, I, take a, I set up a camera, I take the lens cap off, and wait. But there is a lot of, I guess there is a lot of technical stuff in terms of the chemistry and the, the trial and error, finding, finding these old papers that will reverse, and each paper has its own kind of palette and how it reverses, and you have to understand that, okay, that only needs 30 seconds, and that paper needs at least five hours to do anything, and the chemical additives you need to add to the developer to make it do what it wants to try to do, or what you want it to try to do. But I, I guess I've been doing it so long, it just doesn't feel that technical. It's just regular darkroom chemistry, which I was taught growing up 
I mean, it's very intentional. There is a reverence in your work. I mean, the work almost feels holy in a way. And you touched on that a little bit about the way that you have such reverence for the earth and for these landscapes and these systems and all of these forces that are so much bigger than we are aware of most days. But the process that you use to capture these very special actions and landscapes is irreverent in a way because you know you're using destruction and you're burning through paper and using expired paper and all these things that are sort of no-nos. I mean it sounds like that's sort of part of who you are. Even as a teenager you were a skateboarder and a punk rocker and that's kind of part of that aesthetic you know in that life as well. Yeah it's kind of a questioning authority on an authority could be anything it could be the rules of photography (laughs) i i love that contradiction of creation and destruction at the same time i love the fact that these papers i'm using are actually garbage the papers from the 70s and 80s yeah they have a weird chemical fog which renders them useless for traditional printing for the most part so i just love that i'm kind of recycling this stuff as well a lot of these old papers are classic papers that Famous photographers used to love to print on, like uh, this photographer Richard Mizrak, who made these night photographs of cactus that were heavily split-toned with selenium toner on this one kind of paper that would really make these burgundy shadows. I love that connection to it. You get the sense of slowing down, not stopping time or capturing a moment or any of those phrases that you typically hear. It feels even more necessary today both in photography, because you want to have something to counteract these instantaneous, shareable images, and also just to counteract our culture. Yeah, uh, this project has been wonderful in terms of completely warping my sense of time. It's nothing for me to sit in one spot for like five days, outside the whole time. If you think about our sense of time and all the stuff that happens in a day when we're just living our lives, but then you start thinking about the growth of a plant or something, or geologic time. I, I, I just love that it has forced me to sit and stay in one spot. I'm usually in the middle of nowhere, but sometimes I'm, I'm in spots that are regularly visited. I remember going to a location and having experience there and feeling like I, I really got to know the place. But really, I was there for about an hour, and we had lunch, and then we kept walking. And you see these people come through during the day. That's a whole other project, is documenting how people experience one place during a day, and they all have totally different experiences. In the Bay Area, like I'll go to a spot alongside the bay to photograph the sunrise, and there'll be joggers or fishermen. And then later in the day, there's dudes hanging out, smoking weed and <laughs> drinking 40s. Later on, they go away and some school group walks through, and then the drunker fishermen show up and they're pouring whiskey into Gatorade bottles. <laughs> But you're seeing all these different people experience a place. And that's, so that's kind of interesting, too. And that's something I think I would have, well, I just didn't even think about before. By sitting still and staying in a spot has really yeah. taught me about, which I love. If we were to come upon you in the Mojave Desert or the mm-hmm. Arctic Circle, just happened to be walking by, paint me a picture. So what would we, what would we see? And, and hear and smell. Well, if I'm in the middle of doing one of those multiple panel pieces, if you catch me right in the middle where I'm panicking, you might hear a few uh, swear words and uh, the sound of 
clamps and gaffer's tape quickly being patching things up or f trying to fix something that broke. Because <laughs> my, my cameras are rough tools. There's no polished brass or mahogany. It's plywood, aluminum, and wood screws crassly shoved in there. There are smells when it's a nice clear day and there's full bright sun and I have the little computer fan in the hole of my bellows of my camera, there's smoke coming out and certain papers smell terrible, but certain papers smell like roasted marshmallows because certain papers have a heavy coating of gelatin and gelatin is what's in marshmallows and I'm roasting it. <laughs> it has that odor. It's kind of nice. I'm probably not good to breathe in. but And then usually you, people like to joke and say, you know, they make smaller cameras these days. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's a good one. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> You know, you've experimented with different ways to make images as you've walked through this journey from documenting the sun going across the sky to going to different places, the equator to the Arctic Circle and seeing how that looks different and using the same piece of paper over again to trace different um, almost of... like make different marks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like photographing uh, the same location once on the winter solstice, once on the summer solstice, and getting the totally different angles, the, uh, the trajectories of the sun's path in this on the, onto the paper. I mean, that's another part of being out there in the same spot all day. You have nothing but time to think about things and consider other ways of working, like the circuit camera piece, where you get the sine wave of 24 hours of daylight in a continuous frame. Yeah, so let's talk about the circuit camera. Yeah, it's the first panoramic camera. It is a view camera. It just has a roll film back on the back of it, and it takes a 10-inch roll of film that's 20 feet long, usually. It spins around in a circle on top of a tripod. I've always been fascinated by those cameras and, and how they worked. They were usually used for group photographs. The camera was developed in like 1904 and it was used mainly through the 50s and then it kind of tapered off. Their heyday was like the teens and the 20s and the 30s. These photographs would be 10 inches high by up to usually about three to four feet wide. Those are all contact prints and so there's that direct relation that I've always been fascinated with the beginnings of photography. I wanted to make a roll of paper using very thin sheets of black and white paper that I know solarize and constructing my own roll to put into this old camera from 1913. And it had this old wind-up motor. I wanted to change that wind-up motor to be able to track the sun. And actually, I wanted the camera to spin around for multiple days in the Arctic Circle and get that sine wave form, just keep going. Unfortunately, weather is difficult up there to get many days that are clear enough where you could see the waveform, but I, I got some, something. It's a little bit of a long story, but I got an artist residency in Chapel Hill, and uh, one of the requirements was to work in some capacity with students from either Duke University or UNC, and it just so happens that UNC has an astronomy department that has its own machine shop. The dean of physics and astronomy there uh, is a camera nerd. And uh, he always wanted to know how those cameras work, too. And we had a few conversations, and he's like, it looks like a beautiful camera. Do you mind taking it apart <laughs> so we can see how it, its internal workings and take pictures and send it to them back when I was still in San Francisco? And we did. They helped me convert it to an electric motor. 
It's, it's very humbling working with scientists. I feel like a caveman rubbing sticks together to make fire when I, literally, I mean, my cameras are so basic. And that's one thing I love about it is that they can be so basic. Scientists, they work on a whole nother level. They're so smart. But then at the same time, they're like, so why do you want to do all this? <laughs> I have to explain. Well, I really just kind of want to burn this line into a piece of paper and capture this waveform. And they're like, but why do you want to do this? <laughs> But it was also fun because a lot of these students had never seen any camera that was that old or anything that would need to be on a tripod. And I got to introduce them to like the history of photography in a way that was kind of nice. You took this camera eventually after it had been modified to the Arctic Circle. And so what happened when you got there? It broke. (laughs) (laughs) We had to do a little phone call adjustment thing. I had to go back to Fairbanks, Alaska, where you could get a cell phone signal and short 350-mile dirt road trek back there. I got, got more supplies and went back up to the Arctic Circle on that trip. And I was able to get a couple pieces, but really it just had problems. And so I went back the next year. You just know, like I was driving home through the Yukon, through British Columbia. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna have to go back next May. And then, this is another way in which your practice as an artist slows down time. Yeah, I mean, a year is nothing, right? And that's what would happen. The next year would come and you're like, okay, here we are. It feels like it's been about three weeks. I hope I don't make it sound like it's really hard. It, it, it is hard. I mean, I'm terrified of bears and there's grizzlies around there. And, you know, you have your camera set up and if they find you... Uh, <laughs> Well, let's just be glad that they haven't found you so far, Chris. Yeah. So when you went back, did you get some of what you were hoping to get? Yes, yes. I I was able to to get multiple days onto sheets of paper. I I had to stay up there in the Arctic Circle for five weeks. By that time, that was my fourth trip up to Alaska, and I just knew what weather was, and I knew if I wanted multiple days, I needed to allowed time to be there for so long. The very first trip, we were up there for eight days and we just ran out of food. I wanted to do 24 hours of daylight, but I never got it. I got the midnight sun for one day. And after that, we were eating butter and noodles. That's all we had left. And and filtering water out of the stream. But for the most part, I feel like I've I've somehow figured it out. You have a a new series of work called Tidal Mm -hmm. that is very different in some ways. There's no horizon. There's Mm -hmm. no sun going through the sky. They're small pieces Mm -hmm. and they feel very sort of boxed in to the frame of the photograph. They're similar in that you're trying to explore this idea of of the tidal cycle, Mm -hmm. which of course is linked to the sun and the moon and, and, you know, and the earth, all of that. I know you just started it and you're still kind of working out. How is, how is this going to, what, what's happening here? But tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I see it as just a, a, another investigation of time. I mean, there's a lot of places it can go with global warming and sea level rise, but I, 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 while I was making some of these pieces, uh, especially on the coast, or in San Francisco Bay, where you see the tide go out during the exposure, and you see this landscape either that was revealed become concealed by water, or vice versa, become revealed as the tide goes out. For me, it's just another path 
investigation on this idea of thinking about time and these natural cycles that happen. So it's a little bit different, but it feels like it's a closer perspective, which actually is, is the sense that you get when you look at the images versus the images of Sunburn series, for example. It's a much more zoomed-in perspective. Right. Yeah, I mean, literally, we're, we're, we're watching it happen. <laughs> I, I, live, I live on just south of San Francisco on the coast, two blocks from the ocean, and uh, the town of Pacifica, there's buildings uh, falling into, or they're demolishing it before they fall into the sea, but... There's this whole idea of controlled retreat that might need to happen. It's, it's always humbling to know we aren't in control at all. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. And thanks for bringing your work back to Richmond. It's so, uh, so great for me personally to be able to see it see it on the walls and, and get up close and really take a close look at it. And I would also encourage people to come and see it at Candela while it's here in person, because though you can look at Chris's work online, on his own website, and also in many, many uh, places where it's been written about, and your work as an artist has been written about, and also Gordon uh, and Chris published this wonderful book about five years ago about this series. The book is fabulous, but the work in person is completely different than looking at it on the page or online. So come, come see it in person. Yeah, yeah no, they really uh, need to be seen in person. I kind of love the fact that they fail on a computer screen. <laughs> People kind of hate them in, until they see them in person. But no, I, I'm so happy to be back in Richmond. Richmond's awesome. I love this town. You guys got really something special here. Always a pleasure to come back. Well, thanks. Chris McCaw's photographs of the sun and the tides are on view through June 16th at Candela Gallery in Richmond. You can find more information about the show at our website, www.look-c.co. You can also find past episodes of the Look See podcast, like our interviews with sound artist Maria Chavez and photographer Chester Higgins on the website. And you'll also find there plenty of things to watch, read, and do for the art curious in Richmond and beyond. I'm Paige Goodpasture, and thank you for listening to the Look See podcast.